Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello, and welcome to the RC Industry Podcast, episode 116. For those of you new to the show, I'm comedian Simon Kane, and this is the podcast where I interview the most influential people from the worlds of stand-up, comedy, radio, and today, script and comedy consultancy. Steve Kaplan is one of the industry's most respected experts on comedy. He's consulted on projects with DreamWorks, Disney, HBO, and many more, as well as directed shows which have gone on to win Emmy Academy Awards, Golden Globes, and pretty much every award that's worth winning in the industry. He's written two books, and his most recent book, The Comics Hero Journey, is something that we touch upon, and the way that you structure a show, you structure a story, and you structure the way that you tell the jokes in a way that allows the audience to follow the journey that you're going along as a person or as a performer within the piece. I found it really interesting, I found it very enlightening, and uh, it, it really offered me a lot of ideas and ways for structuring future shows and future scripts that I'm working through. It was really, really exciting. I, I, I felt I came off slightly ignorant at places, but I feel like that's kind of my brand, because I largely invite people on. I, I know enough about that I think they are worth talking to, but I don't know enough about their area of the industry. So uh, at the two points, which I think are fairly obvious, that I, uh, I dropped the ball and I, uh, I sort of make it clear that I'm not amazing at script writing and I actually do this one of my main goals this year to improve on it I uh, I think it's I think it's actually okay to leave in I, I normally would take out little bits of things like that but we're all friends here you know we all know that I'm gonna fuck up at some point so that's that's why that's still in there I hope you get as much out of this as I did and um, if you'd like to buy either of his first two books or the third most recent one called the comics hero journey I've put links into the show notes and please tweet him or me and thank either one of us for this episode if you enjoyed it. It really means a lot that you've downloaded it and that you're supporting the show. If you're new here, please don't forget to hit the subscribe button. If you're old here, please do consider giving us an honest, ideally positive review on iTunes. And either way, please do join the Facebook group. It's called RC Industry Podcast and it's on Facebook, obviously. But for now, this is Steve Kaplan. Well, so what I normally do is I is I ask the first question and then I ask the guest if they can incorporate that question into their answer, just so okay. that like I can do an intro and then cut and then it's you talking, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, I think. So, big pardon? I, I think. It makes sense, I think. Yeah, I'm never going to be 100% sure about anything. Yeah, that's a very scientific answer. Um, 
I, uh, well, I thought the first question we could ask is um, how you came to, because well, here's the thing, I've got two first questions, and I don't know which one to start with, and so maybe you can tell me, because your book's just launched, so that's why it's kind of changed what I was originally going to get you to answer first. I don't know whether you want to start with the book, uh, or whether you want to start with the Manhattan Punchline Theatre, and how that sort of has, in my opinion of what I found of you, sort of informed a lot of your decisions going forward from there. I mean, yeah, we can start with that. We could start with, you know, earlier, you know, when I was being chased home every day after elementary school um, and, uh, you know, and talk about <laughs> how I came to think that comedy was going to save my life. Okay. That's a, I mean, that's, that's a title of this podcast now. So what, when was the first time you thought comedy could save your life? Uh, I was a very unpopular kid. Uh, in uh, in elementary school, uh, partly because uh, I was um, hygienically challenged. I think I wore the same. You know, I, I this was in New York, and it was cold and wet and 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 snowy and raining. I think I wore the same sweater for the entire fourth grade, and so and and never got that sweater washed. So every day with the same smelly sweater. So I was not a very popular kid, and so I, I discovered that. If somehow I could make the class laugh, that would be a measure of acceptance for me. But I had a very poor uh, ratio. Like uh, for every 13 things that I shouted out, 12 of them would be met with silence or, or outright um, angry glares. One of them would make the class laugh. But, but to me, that was a good place to start. Kind of like being a, a 10-year-old stand-up comic. Uh, just accepting the failure in, 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 in the search of the one successful set. Um, also, I was being beaten up a lot after school, and I, I found out that if I couldn't outrun my attackers, sometimes I could make them laugh when they caught me. Um, again, there was a very poor ratio involved in being caught and being and making them laugh. But I... I at a very early age, I, I somehow gravitated to all things comedy. Uh, watch comedy movies, um, uh, you know, the uh, sitcoms. I remember I was at a dance once. I think I was 12 or 13 or 14 years old. Uh, and I embarrassedly asked the band who was asking for, they were asking for uh, suggestions, uh, requests. And I remember... I went up there and I said, can you do Thanks for the Memory? Because to me, that was the greatest song in the world. That was, you know, the Bob Hope song. Um, so I was, I was fascinated. I wanted to do this. Uh, as I grew older, I realized that I had limited capacity to make people laugh by myself. Um, I was... Uh, I, I, I was what I would consider to be a bad comic and a bad actor. Uh, but I, I appreciated what good comics and good actors could do. So when I got an opportunity, uh, you know, not too long after, after college, a couple of actor friends of mine wanted to start a theater company, and they asked me to come along with them. And so they pitched several ideas. And for me, the last thing in the world I wanted to do was to, to produce another production of the three sisters all in black turtlenecks. Um, to me, that I, so I, I pitched them the idea that 
let's start a theater company that was devoted to comedy, all comedy. And at the time in New York, uh, that wasn't a very popular or, or commercial idea. This was uh, way before uh, Chris Durang came around and Wendy Wasserstein. And so we kind of... So when, when was this, just to like put a date on it for, for people? Uh, this was 1979. Okay, so late 70s, early 80s. Okay. Yeah. And so we started this company, um, Manhattan Punchline, and we produced comic plays. We had uh, stand-up nights. We, did, we had an improv group. We had a sketch comedy group. We did all things comedy. And a lot of great people came out of it. Um, uh, David Crane, who went on to do Friends and Episodes. Uh, uh, Oliver Platt, uh, and uh, who's uh, uh, Nathan Lane, uh, and um, Michael Patrick King, who later was the executive producer of Sex and the City and Two Broke Girls. He was the main uh, person in our improv group. So a lot of great people came out of it, and hmm. people who are you know showrunners and executive producers of sitcoms now. And so when I started it, I thought I knew everything there was to know about comedy in the arrogance of youth. And after doing it for a couple of years and directing, uh, doing a little bit of acting, uh, again, not very well, and putting something up, you know, directing something and thinking it would be successful and seeing that it was not, uh, I, I thought to myself, okay, I don't know everything there is to know about comedy, but I know what's funny, goddammit. And shortly after that, I thought to myself, um, can I curse on a podcast? I guess so. <laughs> How the fuck does this stuff work? Why is something funny on a Thursday no longer funny on a Sunday? Why, why uh, is a, a play sometimes the funniest the first time you get around a table and read it, but after you work on it, it gets less and less funny? So I was, I was just fascinated and, and obsessed with the idea of how does this stuff work? Uh, because I've been told by lots of people, you're either funny or you're not. Hmm. You're born funny. Although I don't think anybody's ever seen a baby being delivered being slapped on the butt and then turn around and tell the doctor, you know, a funny thing happened to me through the fallopian tubes. You know, it, it's, that just doesn't happen. So, so I started almost by accident to investigate what I thought would be the, you know, the, the art and science of comedy, what, what, what I eventually called the hidden tools of comedy. And that I started working with actors when I came to Los Angeles, um, uh, somebody said, why don't you do this for writers? So I started uh, doing workshops for writers. Uh, I did uh, workshops at DreamWorks and, and Disney Animation. And that led to my first book, which is uh, The Hidden Tools of Comedy. And, um, and, then, and then my second book, which was uh, uh, about a, a, a story structure for comic films, and that was the comic hero's journey. So that's how that happened. It happened because I was unpopular, I, I was unhygienic, I was, getting beat, I was getting beaten up, and I discovered that if I could get the class to laugh for that millisecond, for that millisecond, they accepted and liked it. Ray Romano once said that if he had gotten hugged once as a kid, he'd become an accountant. You know, so, so I think, I think that's, uh, that's a similar story. I... I, I don't like the cliche that every comic uh, sort of wasn't hugged enough or, or wasn't, you know, you know, the popular kid. But I would say that it is not a cliche for it's not it's a cliche for a reason. It's, it it's, it's not it's not uncommon. I think I think what's true for everybody, having done a lot of reading 
and a, a lot of research is that if you look into the background of any comic person, comedian, writer, producer, what you find is that when they were children, they were, they were as fascinated with comedy and comedians and funny bits as other children are fascinated with uh, following a sports team. Uh, and, uh, you know, John Cleese's autobiography talks about the fact that when he was a schoolboy, he would listen to the goon show and come back the next day and in the schoolyard recite those bits for his schoolmates. And, and that's true for everybody. I mean, Judd Apatow famously, inter- you know, when he was in high school, a 15-year-old, he interviewed uh, all these great comedians because I think we're all fascinated with the mechanics of how this stuff works. Why does it work? What's happening when it doesn't work? And what can you do to fix it? Which is what my first book was all about. Have you, have you found that by breaking down an anal- and making an analysis of a joke or of a script or of an idea, you can or you have overthought it to the point where it, it kind of isn't, it's kind of the dissecting of the frog analogy where, you know, you can, you, can t- you can dissect the frog, but then it just won't be alive anymore. Right, yeah, it's a, you, know, you have a dead frog. Um, yeah. You overthink a joke too much? Well, you know, if you, if you, if you listen to uh, Jerry Seinfeld, he's done, this, you know, he's done a couple of films about the art of comedy. And they talk about the fact that they, they focus on a syllable. If they can get the syllable, the syllables right in a sentence, they can get the joke to pay off. So I think, the, again, the, the myth that you can't, it's all magic and, and there's no work involved. Uh, I, I think that's a myth. My, uh, when I was in New York, a lot of my friends were stand-ups. And they would, they would dissect their jokes uh, like Talmudic scholars, you know, going over the Torah, you know, you know the, little, the little nuances. And, and I think that you can overthink it, but, but what I try to do in terms of my work is, I, is, is we've, we set out basic principles. And, and as long as the principles are in alignment, Things should, you know, things should go okay. Now, whether you get an audience to laugh or not, that's something different. I, I draw a distinction between comedy and funny. Funny is whatever makes you laugh. Hey, you know, if you're a racist, you might laugh at a KKK joke, right? Uh, if you're a Nazi, you might laugh at uh, a Holocaust joke. And even some Jews laugh at Holocaust jokes. Look at the producers, you know, by, by Mel Brooks. Um, but, but comedy isn't fun isn't necessarily what makes people laugh comedy is telling the truth and specifically telling the truth about people i, I was at a, a stand-up club last night and there were it was an, it was a a benefit for for an acquaintance of mine who's who's unfortunately dying of this horrible cancer uh and so in order to pay his medical bills because we live we live in a country where you know, where it's our right to carry a gun, but it's not our right to have medical attention. Um, and in order to pay their bills, they, they, they organized this uh, stand-up benefit. And uh, there were like six comics on. And four of the comics just told stories about their life. I mean, Bobcat Goldthwait was one of the comics, and he was brilliant. And he told this story about how he almost died in a plane crash. And it was 
hysterical. But two of the comics got out there with shtick. I mean, this one uh, unfortunate uh, female comic, you know, she came out and said, woo, everything was woo, here's my vagina, woo. And it was such false shtick that, you know, this audience that was just rollicking along with all these great comedians, Billy Martin from, you know, who writes with, uh, you know, with Bill Maher on Real Time and John Ricci, who's uh, a great uh, writer for, for comedy shows. They were brilliantly funny. And then, woo! And everything was, was, was punctuated by this screech as though it was uh, one of those, you know, that, that bad comedian that, um, that they had on SNL, you know, the parody of the bad comedian, the bad, you know, uh, uh, Latin comedian who says, you know, who would punctuate all his jokes with banging on the drums. Uh, and it was painful. And then there was another guy who came out and again, he was force, forcing himself to be crazy and it just didn't work. So, so right there was an example of people coming from an authentic place, telling the truth about themselves with their specific point of views, with their very sharply crafted expression. It's not like they're just improvising. I mean, this, this is crafted material, but it, it's, it, it's, comes from a more comic place, a more truthful place than people who come out with shtick uh, and, and, and noises and woo, as though that's what comedy is. Comedy, in effect, is telling the truth and specifically is telling the truth about people and even more specifically, it's telling the truth about yourself because every joke is autobiography. Every script is autobiography. You're, you know, even if it's other characters, you're telling a truth about yourself, about the way you see the world, the way you perceive the world, the way the world appears to you off kilter. And you're just describing that, giving that to, um, to an audience. Yeah, I, I, I get what you mean about that. I think there's, do you, I mean, do you think that's unique to the American sort of circuit and scene? Or do you think that's a, cause you've obviously sort of taught everywhere. Like you, you, you've taught all over the place. And yeah. I'm wondering whether is something next week and then in february i'm going to brussels but you know there are i mean you're gonna you could make a joke about Theresa may and i might not or or you or or even even more obscurely some some obscure minister that everybody in, in your neck of the woods knows and oh he gets a big laugh and i'm just going well i guess that's some british politician i don't know who it is so you can make a joke about about that but if you make a joke about your relationship, how you live, how hard it is to live, wherever you live, I'm going to relate to that. In fact, the more specific your jokes are, the more the humor will translate. What I found going around the world is that, is that comedy has more similarity around the world than it has differences. Now, uh, you might I might find some wordplay in Singapore that I don't get. And you'll, I'll say, you'll have to explain that to me. Why is that funny? Uh, but for the most part, I've seen films from Singapore, from Ukraine, uh, from Brazil, and I understand it because it's just people trying to ma you know, navigate through uh, a, a world that's, that's strange to them and they barely comprehend, but they have to comprehend it. Um, and to me, that's comedy. So 
in, in my first book, uh, we, we have what we call the, the comic equation. It's a paradigm that I think translates to wherever I, to wherever I go. If you take out politics, if you take out specific culture, and even sometimes the culture of some place, I'll get, I might not get the exact joke, but I get the comedy of it. Comedy is about an ordinary guy or gal, you know, or less than ordinary, struggling against insurmountable odds without many of the required skills and tools to win, yet never giving up hope. And doesn't that describe every, almost every, you know, British sitcom that you can think of? You know, Faulty Towers, The Fall and Rise of, now I forget the name of that great old sitcom. I used to love that. Uh, Reginald something or other. Uh, and Stephen Fry used to say that, that the difference between American humor and British humor is American humor is aspirational, whereas British humor already, already acknowledges that they're losers and, 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 and acknowledges the, um, uh, the pathetic uh, uh, nihilism of the whole thing. Uh, and, and that may, may or may not be true. It probably is true. But, but beneath both those kinds of humors are imperfect humans struggling to make it in an even more imperfect and unknowable world. And as long as, as, as the characters continue to hope, because if they didn't hope, wouldn't they just kill themselves? It's even in British sitcom. You know, if, if it was hopeless, uh, you just take a pill and, and go to sleep and hope you never wake up. But even in British sitcoms, those hopeless, hapless, char- hopeless, hapless characters Still wake up the next day trying to make the best of a bad lot. That's comedy. That's 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 the truth about life. See, I I listened to a couple of interviews uh, that you've done before for preparation for this, and uh, I remember you myself or a lot. You've you've heard the same jokes over and over. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That wasn't what I was saying, but yes, yes, I have. No, I'm, yeah, <laughs> but they're funny. So it's funny. Um, okay. no, I I remember hearing a couple of times you talking about how, um, so for example, especially in the new book, how um, there is kind of, I think you said that you plagiarized it off of, not the whole book obviously, but you plagiarized the idea off of uh, The Hero of a Thousand Faces and, and the idea of it being the comedic version of that. And, right. and I always found the, the essence of the idea of there being a, because this is the thing, I, I, I've sort of been around the circuit enough times now to see that everyone's kind of saying a very similar thing, but in their own way. Right. And so I wonder how the book addresses people being, being able to find their way of telling their story. Well, uh, in, in the book uh, about story structure, The Comic Hero's Journey, basically all I'm doing is I'm saying um, that, that Joseph Campbell talks about a monomyth. In other words, one story that represents all stories, that Beowulf is the same story as Star Wars. And all I'm saying in terms of, uh, in terms of cr- using that format or that template uh, for a comedy is that there are, s- there are several important differences. And it's not that you have to, it's not that you're writing to a formula, but uh, certain things are, I-, I think, important. And if you're not paying, t- if you're not adhering to that, you at least have to have a really good reason. For instance... Uh, in, in a in a dramatic story or an action story, you have uh, you have somebody who is a hero who has greatness within them, right? Luke Starwalk, uh, Luke Skywalker has greatness within him. 
he he tracks uh, the droids. He 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 risks uh, death. He you know he in the beginning of the film, even before he meets up with uh, Obi Wan Kenobi, he's brave. He's resolute. He's everything you'd want a hero to be. He just hasn't been given the opportunity to express it. He has the force within him, but he hasn't been taught how to use it. But in a comedy, our heroes do not have greatness within them. Our heroes are far are as far from greatness within as is humanly possible. Our heroes are us. They're misshapen, misbegotten, you know, blokes who are just kind of bumbling through their lives. And if not for an extraordinary event, they would continue to bumble through their lives. But because of the extraordinary event in a comedy, they are forced to transform. They're forced to become something that they are not. Uh, so um, in, uh, in Groundhog Day, uh, which is one of my favorite films, uh, is Bill, does Bill Murray have greatness within him? No, he's a sarcastic, cynical, womanizing jerk. But because he's forced to live the same day over and over again, and at first he thinks, oh, this is great. I can sleep with whoever I want to. I can rob an armored truck and have all the money I want. But every day he wakes up and it's the same, it's the same day. And it's the same situation. And eventually he gets tired of that. And he's forced to become a different person, a better person. And you see this in many comedy. In As Good As It Gets, uh, Jack Nicholson uh, famously says to Helen Hunt, um, he says, uh, I think it's Helen Hunt. I think that's the actress he's, he's working against. He takes her out to dinner, and he's this, he's this mass of idiosyncratic uh, behaviors and, and OCD and, and all, this, all this stuff, all these disorders. And he says, what do you, why don't you say something nice to me, for instance? Because he, he famously just insults everybody and is, is antisocial. And he says to her, I wish I could be the man that you would like. I mean, and to me, that's, that's very indicative of a comedy that, that our characters start off as less than. And because of circumstances beyond their control, in Wizard of, in, in um, Groundhog Day, uh, he's living the same day over and over again. In Big, he becomes a 30-year-old man. In 40-year-old Virgin, uh, Steve Carell's secret is exposed and he's forced to do something about it. They're, they're forced out of their comfort zone. They're forced into a new place and they have to, not because they want to. I mean, Luke wants to join the rebellion. He wants to be a pilot. He wants to do daring do. Steve Carell doesn't want to date girls. You know, he says, I respect women. I respect them so much, I stay the hell away from them. But they're forced to do something that is not within them. And therefore, they have to transform. So all comedy in long form, in long form narrative, is transformative. Uh, and so is that a formula? I don't think so. And, I, and, and in my book, I, I take pains to say that, that there's a journey that a comic hero goes through. But it, it doesn't happen on page, this doesn't happen on page 12. That doesn't have to happen by page 37. Uh, a comic hero starts in the normal world. And they think that world is working well for them. So, so here's the principle. If your character is aware that their world isn't working, 
you've written a drama. You've written a drama where they're going to be looking soulfully out into the camera. You know, they're going to be drinking scotch, you know, musing about themselves. But most comic characters are not aware that their life isn't working. They're, they're making do just as well as they can. Uh, so the normal world is about them not knowing uh, how really screwed up they are. And then comes along what we call the, the what the fuck moment, the WTF, in which something absurd or, or impossible or improbable happens that forces them out from their comfort zone. And then as that happens, these characters begin to form relationships with other people where they had none. Um, they form, and it's not always love relationships, but it's just forming allies, what we call the discovered goal. Dramas or action, action films, oftentimes our characters have a single goal. In Die Hard, Bruce Willis's goal is to save his wife and kill the terrorists. As soon as the terrorists take over, that's his goal. That's who he is. He's a cop. He's going to do it. Luke Skywalker wants to join the rebellion. That's his goal. And that's what he eventually gets to do. But Steve Carell's goal in the beginning of 40-Year-Old Virgin is not to have a relationship with a woman. It's exactly the opposite. It's to just play with his toy soldiers, you know, play Halo on his, uh, on his PlayStation, go to work, watch Survivor with his friends from the upstairs apartment, and that's it. So in, in a comedy, the comic hero has a discovered goal. This is a goal that they had no idea that they wanted in the beginning of the movie or in the beginning of, of, the, of the narrative. Had no idea, but because they're transforming throughout the narrative, they become, they're becoming a different person. They have different wants and needs. They, become, they have a different goal. But, you know, but there are similarities. Uh, in, in, in many movies, there's the all is lost moment. Uh, that's still true for a, for a comic hero. But again, they're, they're principles. So if you have a character who starts off the movie, the narrative, as a broken figure, then uh, I just read a, a screenplay where uh, a guy uh, starts off his narrative as a guy who has two really good jobs and a fiancé, and his only problem is he's got to get enough money to fix his hotel. And I said to him, you've you've already started 90% of the way to where this guy is going to end up. So there isn't much, a, much of a journey for him. There isn't much of an arc. Why don't you not make him have a fiance? Why don't you make the girl somebody that he likes? But if this guy isn't formed, he isn't a, a fully expressed human being, maybe he hasn't figured out how to ask her out on a date yet. Maybe that's something that he's going to discover if he goes through the story. Why don't, don't give him this great job why, if he's if he's got this great job where you know where he's where he has one problem and he's got this hotel, why doesn't he just sell the hotel? Give him give him a reason for having to invest so much to get this hotel going. Don't make him the the head designer. Make him make him a clerk who's got aspirations. One of my favorite movies is Five Hundred uh, Days of Summer, uh, a great movie with Joe. Uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Um, and in the beginning of the movie, he's working at a job that he doesn't like. He's writing the filler for greeting cards. So if you started him off as an architect, which he ends up as, where do you have to go? What's brilliant about the movie is that is that he flirts with the idea, yeah, maybe I could be an architect when Summer says, oh, 
what, what would you rather be? But he, he crumpled, you know, he draws a little picture and then he realizes, no, nah, no, he crumples it up, he throws it away. That's a brilliant moment for a comedy. So comedies don't have to be yuck, yuck. They just have to tell the truth in their own specific way. Truth can be as, as absurd as airplane and it can be as subtle as, as uh, Enough Said, which is the last film that James Gandolfini did with Julia Louis-Dreyfus, which is a very small film. Uh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus plays a uh, massage therapist, and there's no big supernatural event that, that changes everything. No, she, she starts dating this guy at the same time that she creates, she has a new best friend who's a, a, ther- a massage therapy client. It just turns out that the new best friend is the ex-wife of the new boyfriend, and everything she tells her about the boyfriend starts to ruin her relationship with James Gandolfini. Now, is that an impossible situation? No, but it's improbable. It's improbable that you wouldn't say, hey, you know, I think I'm, I think I'm, I'm giving massages to your ex-wife. It's improbable that she would keep it a secret. So, so it doesn't need to be a, a big supernatural thing like in Big or Groundhog Day, but it just needs to be something that's impossible or improbable that our our broken broken heroes uh proto heroes have to deal with so that's a long way of answering your question that that it's that that it's not about following a formula it's really about fixing on principles that will help you tell your story in your own way hello there i hope you're enjoying this interview as much as i'm enjoying putting it together as you may or may not have noticed depending on whether or not this is your first episode listening to the show or not there are now mid-roll ads within the podcast this is largely because i need to make the podcast make money uh sorry about that that is (laughs) that's just a fact the podcast makes a giant loss and uh, if you want it to continue, the ads are going to have to be in place. I was listening back to some of them and talking to a few friends about this. And um, it feels a little bit odd to just immediately cut in the middle of an interview to an ad without any warning or notice. So that's what this is really. I'm basically uh, letting you know that there's about to be an ad that will come up and will play in the middle of this episode. If you would like copies of this podcast that do not have ads, you can become a patron from $1 an episode. Uh, That's 80p, roughly, if you're English, and most of this audience is. So if you would like to donate $1, because it's an American website, if you'd like to donate $1 per episode, you'll get an episode that has no ads, and you can just listen to it on the podcast player of your choice. You can do that at patreon.com forward slash RC Industry Podcast. Not only that, but you help me have a budget for future episodes. So that's exciting and that's really cool, isn't it? Now, the problem here I've got is not everyone who downloads the podcast gets a mid-roll ad because if they don't have any ads for the mid-roll, they just don't include it in the episode. So as a result, I'm about to say, here comes your mid-roll ad and there might not be one. So... Here comes a mid-roll ad or a very weird intro to nothing. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Did you get an ad? Did you get an ad? I can't tell. I don't know. I'm, I'm putting the thing together. They add the ads in later. Have you? Did you get an ad? How was the ad? Was the ad good? I hope the ad was good. I have to approve or deny most of the ads. So if, if it wasn't a good ad, let me know. But if it was a good ad, let me know as well. I'd love to talk to you about which ads you're really enjoying. Thank you very much for putting up with that advert. Thank you very much for putting up with my ramblings in the middle of the podcast. As I said, if you want to avoid ads and these rambles, please, please, please become a patron of the podcast. It costs you ATP or $1 just to remove these ads, essentially, and keep the project going. Uh, Yeah, that's all I have to say about that. Hope you enjoyed this uh, little mid-roll feature that I'm going to start incorporating into more episodes. I guess we'll get back to the podcast now, shan't we? Let's dive back in. And that's your, uh, I don't want to call it this, but your day job, essentially. You you script edit and work one-on-one with with writers and, and performers who are working on ideas. Yes. And I was wondering, at, at what stage do people or should people approach you with an idea or, or, or do you approach them? Because I know you, the HBO Writers Room, for example, I assume was to field ideas from writers and to field people to come to you and have a, and have a more formalized way of doing that. Well, I, I do two things. I, I go around the world um, doing these two or three or four days workshops, kind of, kind of like Robert McKee, but, but for comic. Um, and I also work with writers and producers and studios in terms of, in terms of working on scripts. And it could be as early as when somebody's working on a treatment. I, 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 I worked on a lot of treatments or a finished script so that uh, I could be given a script that's in its fifth draft and they just want to get one more eye on it, one more third eye uh, to see if they've missed anything or missed any, any important points. 
And when I do that, occasionally, because again, I'm, I'm, I'm not a stand-up comic, and uh, occasionally I'll come up with a funny line that I'll pitch. You know, here, what happens, if, what about if this person says X instead of Y? But for the most part, what I'm, what I'm looking at is what is the theme of the movie? Because what I find is that most people have kind of a, a vague idea of what the theme is about. But they have a really good idea of what the, the circumstances, the situation, the characters. But for me, the best way to develop a, a feature is to marry the character propelled by the premise, guided by the theme. What's the meaning of it? What's what? At some point, somebody's going to say, "What's this movie about?" And they're not asking, "What's the premise of the movie? What's the situation?" It's, it's what are you talking about? Uh, what what is the real purpose of the movie? Uh, for instance, in Groundhog Day, which is, you know, a, a movie uh, that was originally thought to be it's going to be a light summer feature, and uh, the movie uh, had uh, this scene where. The second day that Bill Murray, Phil Connors, discovers that he's living the same day, he decides to figure if it's really happening. So what he does is, in this is uh, in the script, uh, you can Google it, you just write in Groundhog Day, and what will usually come up is the second draft that Danny Rubin did with Harold Ramis. Uh, and it's, it comes up right online, you can download it, you can read it. And in the second draft, what happens is he cuts his hair into a mohawk, he trashes his room like he's a rock star, and he wakes up the next day, and it's all the same. It's the same as it always was. And they shot it. And when they looked at it, they thought to themselves, why would he do that? Because the, the, this is a story about Groundhog Day. The theme of Groundhog Day is how can you be a mensch in the word? And mensch is a Yiddish word that means like a good person, a man. And so if, if this is a story about a guy just trying to figure out how to be a good person. Why would he cut his hair into a mohawk? How would that help him? How, how does that show him struggling? With it? So they, at, at great expense, they reshot the scene. And if you watch the movie, all he does at that same moment in the script is he breaks a pencil. He puts one part on the night table and one part on the floor. And when the next, you know, uh, when the scene then cuts to the next day and you hear Sonny and Cher singing, uh, I got you, babe. He wakes up and he finds the pencil and that's it. Now he knows that he's really living the same day over and over again. So that's following, uh, a, a, a following the movie thematically as opposed to having plot, having plot dictate. And, and, and most unsuccessful comedy, I think, have, have the, make the mistake of putting plot bits in front of character and theme. So, so what I try to do when working with, when working with writers is I'm, because I'm new to the, to the project, I'm just really, I'm cognizant. I'm just very aware of what this movie is trying to say and, and what it means beyond the silly characters and, and, and the jokes and just trying to make sure that they don't veer too far from it as they develop the narrative. What is, what is this movie trying to say? What, what, what are they really trying to do? What would this character really do in that situation? Not what would, what would be funny for this character to do, but what would the character really do? Because nine times out of ten, if you answer the question, what would this character do? You're going to come up with something as good, if not funnier, than what would be the funny thing to do. 
because I come back to my original statement, funny is different from comedy. What you think is funny is different from what I think is funny. So if you chase funny, if you're chasing funny, you're going to leave a, a certain percentage of the audience out because a certain percentage is going to think, no, that's not funny. Whereas a certain percentage will think, yeah, that's funny. But if you write about what's comic, what's human, what's true, then whether people laugh or not, they're going to, they're going to follow it. They're going to uh, empathize with it. They're going to buy into that story because it's truthful. Even if you didn't think it was funny, it's truthful. Because if you go to a film or a TV show that you think, oh, this is no good, and what you'll find, the parts where you're not liking it, they're trying to make you laugh as opposed to telling you the truth. Whereas the, the shows that you like, they're making you laugh and they're telling you the truth at the same time. Sometimes you're not laughing, but you're still going, yeah, I get it. One of, one of my favorite new uh, sitcoms is a very unfunny comedy. I wouldn't say unfunny, but it's, it's not trying to be funny. It's just so heartbreaking and true. Uh, Kidding, uh, the new Jim Carrey sitcom in which he plays a, a, a Mr. A Rogers kind of character who's, who's going through some horrible situation with his life. And it's heartbreaking, uh, but it's also well within the comic realm. It's, it's not a tragedy. It's not Igmar uh, Bergman. It's, it's still within the comic realm. And so, and so uh, I try to, when working with writers, I try to help them achieve their best version of their best voice, as opposed to... Here's what I think is funny. You should do that. Did you, because you, because you, you said that you were trying out comedy before you then moved into essentially the behind the scenes version of it. Did you ever do any, like try any characters, like be a character yourself? Because it sounds yeah. like you I, want to I, just embed yourself into characters in a way that would lend itself to you doing live character work yourself. Well, I, I, I study, I did improv. I, I was in an improv group. Uh, and in fact, I always tell writers that, that the one thing they should do, or one of the things that they should always do, is take improv classes. Because even if they don't want to perform, they need to know what it's like to, to look through a character's eyes, hear through a character's ears. So, yeah, I mean, I, I did that. And when, when, I, when I work on a script, I'm, I'm always trying to put myself in the shoes of that character. What would that character say? What would that character really do? And sometimes... That brings that brings me and the writer to to a place that they hadn't they hadn't thought of yet, and 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 worked might work better might work better in that moment. How are you? So when you're like script editing and when you're directing shows and ideas that you haven't come up with, but people have come to you with, how do you make sure that you don't take over the project with how you would do it, and instead just enhance their project? Because, uh, I guess because I'm, I'm honoring the character that they've created. The character that they've created and the situation that they've created, the premise that they've created. And, and more, than, more than anything else, I don't give answers. I ask questions. And I'll say, why is the character doing this here? And if they tell me, they give me a good reason, I'll go, oh, okay. But if they give me a reason like, well, I thought it would be funny, like, then I'll ask you another question. Doesn't he want X? Why isn't he trying to do X? So my, my methodology is not to invent on top of their invention as much as try to see the world through those character, that character's eyes. And, and, and if the way I see the character isn't the way the character's acting, I'll ask a question. 
I could be wrong. That's why when when I work, I do not write up a list of notes, send them off, and that's it. Because to me, a consultation is an interactive uh, interactive activity that depends upon the input of both parts. Uh, I'm asking questions, the writer's giving answers, the director or the producer's giving answers, and, and sometimes through those conversations, we come up with a, a new direction that neither one of us had thought of in the beginning that come out of that conversation, those questions. Do you, do you ever find, I mean, cause, okay, so when I first started in comedy, and I think this is a common trope for, for people doing live performing in particular, you kind of have a fear that the audience are going to hate you. And so you kind of rush to try and be as, as funny as possible. Not in like a, because uh, obviously you want to be funny, but you, you kind of aren't thinking about what you're, why you're being funny. You're kind yeah. of just like, that works, I'll stick to it. That, that kind of works, I'll do that again. And it's not, you're not thinking would who I'm being on stage say that or would who I'm portraying be interested in talking about that and it sounds like what you're trying or what you do is sort of refine people's attention to what would be of interest to that specific scenario yeah I mean, yeah and if first I, I I don't teach stand-up per se but when I've worked with stand-ups what we're working on is who's your persona how do you see, how does this persona see the world? Uh, how is that, how is that vision different from somebody else's vision? If you, if you look at the career of George Carlin, I mean, he's a very different person when he's playing the hippy dippy weatherman than in his later years where he's just playing this, this crank, you know, this cranky old guy who tells the truth, who, however he sees it and he doesn't care what you think. That's, that's persona. I mean, when, when, again, when I was in New York working, uh, and a lot of my friends were stand-ups, they would often tell another stand-up, I, I wrote this joke, but I can't use it, because it's not me. It's not my on-stage persona. Why don't you, this would fit you better. So that, so that it's not about telling a random series of funny one-liners. It's really about creating a character that sees the world in a particular way and has a very specific way of expressing. So uh, again, what I say is for with, with stand-ups, uh, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get them to focus on who is this persona? Who am I? How do I see the world? And how do I express that through this material, through this bit, as opposed to what is the funniest thing I can do and say right now? Because again, if you chase funny, a percentage of the people who are listening aren't going to agree with you. So don't, don't be focused on funny as opposed to comedy, as opposed to what is, who is this character and what is he struggling with and dealing with right now? And, and of course, there's, there's all the attention that needs to be paid on material, on, on sharpening and shaping the material to get the best response. So it's not just, I'm going to tell the truth about myself, like some of these alternative comics, I'm putting them in, in air quotes, alternative comics who basically just get up and, and kind of vomit out their day without it sh being shaped at all. It, it, it requires great editing and shaping and, and choice, choice of words, choice of, uh, of, of syntax. But, but beneath that, underneath that has to be just telling your own truth as, 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 far as who that persona is if you're a stand-up. It, it feels like counterintuitive advice, though, because 
if your main aim as a writer or a performer is to be funny by definition as a comedian or as a, or as a person who's made a, a script for a sitcom or, or a comedy film, for example, it's, it seems odd to focus on the characters over the jokes. As, as someone who's never written a film, I should point that out. Um, it just, it's, 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 it would be, so like I've, I've written sitcom ideas and things and, and I always find I'm more interested in the situation and how that can be funny than the characters. And so... Yeah. It, What's your favorite sitcom? Uh, the moment, Brooklyn Nine Nine. Okay, could the things that that uh, Terry Crews says be the same things as what Chelsea Peretta says? No. So you have to focus on character. You have them mm. in this situation, but how they relate to the situation, what they see in that situation, what they focus on in that situation, comes out of character. I mean, the comedy comes from. I mean Charles, for instance, who's you know I I you know Joe Regal, what what's his name? I, I'm I, yeah, some long Italian name. But the character, the guy who plays Charles, he's such an a, a crazy idiot who's you know he's like this foodie. So so if they're on a if they're on on a and he's and he just adores he worships us Andy Samberg. So if he's in a situation in which in which Samberg says let's have a cheeseburger. What, what, what would Charles say? Oh, that's so great. She's, you know, plus you know who Charles is. Hmm. Uh, so so you're, you're really working for, uh, for character through character. Um, one of my favorite sitcoms, uh, you know, it's kind of a classically made sitcom, is Everybody Loves Raymond. And what they talked about, what Phil Rosenthal and Steve Scroven used to be one of the uh, executive producers and was one of my students back in New York, what they talked about is the fact that they didn't write a lot of jokes. In fact, that they would take jokes out because it got in the way of telling the story and telling the story about the character. So, so you can start with uh, your idea. You can start with anything. You can start with uh, just an image in your head. You can start with writing down all the funny things you want to write about. But when you put it together, when things aren't working, and this is the important thing. You know, you want to just let it pour out of you. And if it's pouring out of you and if it's golden, great. Don't, don't, don't uh, edit it. Don't, don't overthink it. But when things aren't working, when things are flat, when you think this isn't working, that's when you go to character and theme. Not theme, not so much in a sitcom, but, 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 but definitely character. If, if this isn't funny, if this joke isn't funny, at least let the character say something that's, indicative of the character and develops the character and develops the story. If it's not going to, if, if my bad joke isn't going to work, why replace it with another bad joke? Have the character say something true. And it might be the, it might be the funniest thing that, that you could write. In fact, uh, you're familiar with Seinfeld, right? Uh, actually, no. Okay. Um, I'm Jerry Seinfeld live. I, I, I've never actually seen Seinfeld. You've never seen an episode of Seinfeld? Never seen Seinfeld. I keep getting told to watch it, and the problem well, is people play it. You don't have to like it, uh, but, but they have a very famous episode in which they have a contest. It's called The Contest, and they're trying to see who can go the longest without masturbating. I'm aware of this. I know where, I've seen the scene of this, but I've not seen yeah. an episode. So. And they don't use the word masturbating. They use master my own domain. And so there's a scene. I think this is like scene three. And they, they notice that outside the window, Across the street, 
there's there's a lady naked in her apartment, and they're just watching it, and they're watching it, and all of a sudden Kramer gets all kinky, and he he exits. Elaine comes in, and she there's talking, and and have you done it yet? No, I'm this is gonna be easy, and then Kramer comes back, slams his fist down on the table with a bunch of money, and says, "I'm out, I'm out." Why? What is so funny about "I'm out"? I'm out isn't a great joke, but it's the character in the situation. You know that he just went off, went across the hall to his own apartment and did it because he got all excited about watching the naked lady outside the window. That's one of the longest laughs that they ever had to hold for in Seinfeld because of character, as opposed to let me come up with a funny joke. Now, was it a funny bit? It was very funny but not because somebody said something clever or said a joke, but because a character reacted in character to the situation. Makes sense. And now you have to go uh, with Seinfeld. I will, I will watch that episode after this. Literally, I was okay. just thinking to myself, I want to write a note somewhere to, although I'll, I'll probably hear it again when I edit it back later and I'll, I'll just do it then. I ju- it's, it's more, I've got this habit of if people place, if people tell me how I should feel about the thing too much, <laughs> I don't want to see the thing. So it's like, how about this? I'm not going to tell you. How, I'm interested to know how you react to it as opposed to you have to watch it. I'm just I will let you know. Okay. I'll let you know. I will let you know. I, it was a bit like with Ghostbusters, the, the, the reboot one, if you like. Everyone was giving me, you know, it was, it, either it was amazing or either it was the worst thing ever. And because everyone was trying to tell me how to feel, I was like, I just don't want to do it. So yeah. I was going to quickly ask you then about how. Uh, format makes a difference to writing so not as in the actual thing as in moving so for example watching it on the big screen or watching it on your tv or watching it on your phone and whether you have to take that into account now when you're thinking about how people will consume say for example a netflix special that they could be watching on a train or a commute versus uh, a film they might actually sit down and watch that's a great question i have no idea uh i can i can make a guess but I, I don't have firsthand knowledge of, of people struggling with that. My guess is that um, they, sh- they, they do it for its optimal viewing format. If you're making a TV show, what does this look like on TV? They're making a movie, what does this look like on a movie? And then they leave it to people who know about that stuff, how it will translate to watching it on your iPhone. My guess is that the creators... Certainly the writers aren't worried about how this will happen on an, on, on an iPhone. However, if you're doing a web series, then you are focused on what will this look like when I see it on my phone? Because they're creating material, not for somebody to sit and watch it on a computer, because so few people do that. You millennials, you. Uh, so few people do that nowadays. They're, think, they're thinking about when I do this, this is going to be sh- uh, watched on a phone, so how will it look like when I do it? That's my best guess, but having not really worked, uh, had to deal with that problem in, in real life, I'm, I'm, I'm left to theorize as opposed to give you experience. So that, that doesn't come into place when you're editing a script? You, you don't think about where it would... No, also I imagine- I'm just oh. trying to figure out what's going on, who is this character, and what do they want, what, what is what is uh, what is the obstacle, either internal or external, in getting what they want? And what would they say? How, how do they what, what? How do they express themselves? Okay. 
Uh, I'm going to ask you the very last quick fire questions. Um, they're quick for me. Take as long as you like. What is the biggest mistake you've ever made, and how did you overcome it? The biggest mistake I've ever made. I ever made was uh, at a certain point in my career. I got involved with these people who were talent managers, and they said, "Why don't you come aboard and be a talent manager?" And I thought, "Well, my skills is in." Kind of discovering and developing comic talent, so maybe that would work. And it turned out that I was a terrible man um, because I hate rejection, and and being <laughs> a manager is all about being rejected. So I would call somebody up and say, "What about that that uh, that script I sent you?" And they would go, eh, "It's not for us." And I would feel like, "Oh, I just got to play some computer games for a couple of hours now." <laughs> it feels really bad. I was I um, there. There's a saying in the representation business. Don't smell it, sell it. But I'm, but I'm somebody who was all about the art of it and how good it was. And so, on the one hand, I hated being rejected, and on the other hand, the other thing that's terrible about being a talent manager is that clients break up with you. I mean, you get you you get somebody a a, a big role, and then they say, you know, I like you as a person. You're a really nice guy, but why do I need a manager and an agent? So it was like getting broken up with a girl every week. Uh, it was horrible, and and I was glad to get out of it. But um, so that was to me that was my biggest mistake is in leaving what I had been doing my whole life, which is working in uh, working with writers, working with directors, working on content, uh, discovering talent, and helping to develop talent. When I tried to sell talent, I was not. That was that was outside of my comfort zone, and I was no good. See you out there who I might have represented. I am so so sorry. <laughs> um, what is the biggest misconception people have about what you do? That uh, that comedy is something you're born with. You're just born funny. Now, are you a stand-up? Yeah. Okay. Have you ever done a, a gig that bombed? Yeah. 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 But you're funny. So shouldn't it, should you be funnier all the time? So I think, I think people, the misconception is that comedy is about laughing, comedy is about funny, and that uh, if you're funny, you're funny. And um, uh, there's, uh, you know, that's it. That's the end of the, that's the end of the, you know, the conversation. And that's not true. You're a funny guy, and yet you go out sometimes, and people don't like you. Does that mean you're not funny? No, it just means that you you that that one experience didn't go as well as you hoped it would, and that you have maybe have some work to do on that material or that presentation. I was, was going to say all the audience just weren't right for it. Ah, you see, that's where that's where I would disagree because I, as a producer, because I would I produced uh, live theater. As a producer, I would stand in the back of the audience, and the actors would come out and say, "What a terrible audience." And yet, I was in the audience, and I wasn't terrible, and I was ready to laugh. Something would be happening on stage that they weren't aware of. That's what started me on this exploration, that actors were doing something that they had no idea what was happening or what, what the effect was, and they were blaming the audience when, in fact, they were doing something that was changing the experience for us. And that's when I started to try to work on what is comedy, how does it work, why does it work, what's happening when it doesn't work, and how can you fix it when it doesn't, which is 
what my work has all been about. Who do you think is the most underrated person in the industry? Me? No, no, no. Uh, okay. <laughs> you know, I, I have a different answer for that. Uh, every, you know, uh, on a different day or a different month. I used to love the Drew Carey show. I thought it was brilliant. It never got any awards. I thought he was underrated. I think uh, episodes and kidding are great sitcoms. I think that's underrated. Who's the most underrated? I, I don't know because if they're if they're known, then then they're rated. So I, I, I think that I, I would have to think about it. I'm not sure I know I'm not sure I, I have the ready answer for that. Uh, I'm I'm so focused on films and television that I'm I'm not I'm not as current on stand-ups as I should be. And there's probably stand-ups who are great, who are underrated, who I should know about, but don't. Uh, it could be someone Regan, Heidi Regan. Okay, you think she's underrated? No, it's just it's 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 always an interesting question to ask because I'm trying to ascertain who people work with who are maybe not famous or maybe are known but only known in the circle that the person I'm interviewing are in, and so it kind of gets me gets me down another rabbit hole of googling a new person and seeing seeing who is. Oh, Josh Lawson. Why him? Uh, he's a great writer uh, and a, and a great. Uh, filmmaker, uh, he was uh, one of the. He was in, on the cast of House of Lies, but he also wrote this great film called A, S uh, a Small Death uh, that I, I did some consultation on. But more importantly, he he did he wrote uh, and directed and starred in a short that was nominated for an Oscar last year. And not very many people know who Josh Lawson is, but I would. If you're looking for somebody who you don't know, who you should check out, Josh Lawson. I'll give him a Google. All right, okay. well, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you. That was Steve. I loved hearing about how long-form comedy can be transformative, how you might need to change, or it might be something in the world that needs to change. Um, if you've written a world where a character knows their world isn't working, you've written a drama. What a lovely way of putting it and explaining to people if, if their work isn't working in the way they want it to and the genre it wanted to. It's just such a captualized way of looking at it. I love that. Um, I've, I think there's a... There's a I think the, uh, the the reverse of that he said was if you've written a character who doesn't know their world isn't working, you've written a comedy. Beautifully. Oh, he's so succinct. You can tell he just finished writing a book, can't you? Um, I really love that. I got loads out of that and I really enjoyed it. I hope you did as well. If you did, feel free to tweet either me or Steve and uh, the link should be in the show notes. It really helps to say thanks to the guests and me, by the way. I spend hours editing these, so it's nice to know when people have listened to them and enjoyed them. Um, don't feel like you can't DM me on Facebook if we're not friends. Um, a lot of people recently started DMing DMing me and apologizing before they send it. They've been like, oh, I'm really sorry because I know we're not friends. I hope this isn't too weird. Absolutely fine. Okay, my DMs are open for a reason. So if you, uh, same on Twitter, you can DM me on Twitter if you don't want to do it publicly. Um, so yeah, if you'd like to thank me for any of the work that's gone into this, I'd massively appreciate it. Uh, that can be done for a thanks or a subscription or a review on iTunes. Ideally a five star, but if not, a four star that reads like a five star would be just as good. And if not, you can donate. Have you got a couple of quid knocking about? Have you have you got enough to become a patron from $1 an episode? That's 80p. 80p? Do you reckon what you just heard was worth 80p? Seriously. Can you afford that? I think you can. If you can, I, uh, I'd, really, I'd really appreciate it. If you can't afford it, don't worry. This podcast is on me. Just come see me when I'm doing a show near you or something. 
But uh, yeah, speaking of which, if you have a look in the show notes, you'll see there is a, a little um, image that tells you uh, where I'm going to be in the next couple of months. Um, doing a lot of previews up and down the country and uh, I'd love to see you at one of them if you can come down please do I'm doing I don't even want to run you through all the cities but I'm doing 35 previews I think in between now and August so uh yeah please please do come to that I'm also signed up to Edinburgh uh, the name of the new show is every room becomes a panic room if you overthink enough um and it's uh it's a blend of theatre, comedy, and storytelling. I'm really proud of it. Oh, my God. I'm so happy with the way this is going. Oh, everyone says that. Fucking hell. Got to find a new way of being proud of my work now, haven't I? But, yeah, it's it's uh, it's genuinely so different to anything I've ever done before. At least it feels that way for me. And, uh, and I think it's really exciting. So, please come check that out. Uh, if you like this episode, you might also like my episode with director John Gordillo, where we delve into whether comedians need a director, the value of directing, and what you can actually get or expect from a session with him. Yeah, I, I really love that episode, and I think it's very worth a listen if you if you liked this episode and the subjects that were touched upon within it. The RC Industry Podcast is a fruit that got in gravity's way production for the internet. All elements were created by me, comedian Simon Kane. Thank you very much for listening, thank you very much for subscribing, and thank you very much for rating and donating if you do. I'll see you all in about 14 days' time. Bye! Selling a little? Or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.